Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Alrighty. Welcome back, everybody. Hope you guys had a good weekend. Um, I had a lot of fun recently doing this last video, the Dividend Haters one. I, I thought it was a fun, lighthearted video to do. I hope nobody took it too serious. Um, look, I love the strategy. Most of all, I think I like the mentality behind it. That's what I wanted to talk about was the mindset that the strategy puts you in and that's a good strategy for dividend growth investing and how I think that's advantageous to investors in general. So I'm going to be using an analogy in that and part of that will be going in and comparing all my different holdings, whatever these companies are, to real estate and to rental income properties. So uh, there's an analogy. It's I'm not the one making this analogy up, by the way. I'm not the inventor of it, but I think it's a really great one and it fits really well with my mentality as investor. So part of this, why I'm talking about mentality is a precursor to something that I've been working on that I'm going to be doing in the next video and releasing in the next video. And I'll go ahead and show you what that is. So as you guys know, I've been using this graph a lot in my videos. And I say, this is the data that I look at the most to see my portfolio's performance. It's the monthly dividend graph. And you can see it just increasing over time. This is the amount of money that my portfolio is putting out and yield every single month, month over month. Last month for June, I had $143 paid to me just in cash from all my different holdings, right? So this graph and this one, these are the two that I've been using and they're good. They do the job. But I've been working with a friend on something I think is a lot better that I'm going to share with you guys. I'll give you a little preview of it. So this is just a preview of my dividend growth tracking graph that me and a buddy made. Um, his name's Henry. He's one of my best friends. He works as a, well, he worked as an accountant at like KPMG for four years and then works at a, a different company now. Anyway, he helped me with a lot of the different things like the Excel formulas and going over the averages and kind of averaging out how, how we can do projections. And then I did some of the more stuff to make it so that it's easy to update using some custom JavaScript that I wrote for this graph. And together, I think it made a cool, pretty cool project that I'm excited to share with you guys. Now, you'll see some stuff that looks new and then some stuff that looks familiar. So I'll go over it. The first one here, this graph off to the right here, it says actual monthly income. This is identical to the previous graph I've been using month over month plotted out of how much money you made that month. And you can see as it goes up $143 in June, right? That was last month. And that graph is pretty basic. You can use that as an indicator. But like I said, mentality is everything. With this portfolio, my goal is to generate a passive stream of income. Dividend growth investing is a vehicle to achieve that goal of generating passive income. Now, if I go over here, this graph, I think, really properly illustrates how I'm doing with that goal. What this one does is it takes all the previous data of all the different months that you've already been paid dividends, and it uses some formulas to map out the different numbers as well as the rate of growth from month to month, and then it makes projections based off your historical rate of growth of what your future rate of growth will be. So right now, even though this last month I made $143, this month right now in June, my average income is $130, which I think is pretty darn accurate. Now, it has projections based on if I am depositing the same amount, if the companies are kind of growing at the same rate, what it will do is it will project out and say, you know, next month, 
I should be averaging 145. And this is a year, your average monthly income over a 12 month period. So 158 and so on and so forth until I can look at September 2020 and I should be making $355 a month in dividends. September 2020, if I have about the same rate of growth that I do currently. Now, what will happen is as you get more data points, right over here, I have all the historical data points, right? Like a year and a half. The more data points you have, the more accurate this should be. Because what happens is this right here is pretty volatile this month to month. But the data averaged out over a longer period of time gives this formula a better idea of how much money you're making. Now, another thing that you'll notice is that the current month is highlighted blue. So that's what I did is a highlighted a darker blue to let you guys know what month is a current one. And then you can also see this gray line on top of it. Does that look familiar? That gray line, that pattern is the exact same as your actual monthly income. So what it does is it overlays the actual monthly income over the average. You can see that it just the average goes right kind of through the middle. And then you can expect to see the same thing, right? This actual monthly income is still gonna be kind of volatile going up and down, but the average gives you an idea of how it's just gonna steadily climb over time. And again, I think this is just awesome because it gives you a more gradual look at what things are going on. This way you can look at this and say, this is where I came from. This is the growth rate that's happening. And you're not so focused on these month over month changes and swings in income, right? And then there's one last graph, this green one down here. Really, this one's a really simple formula, super easy. All it is is the month average monthly income times 12. It's just your average yearly income, just so you don't have to do the math in your head. I can see right now my annualized average income for the year is $1,563. Meaning if I never did anything with my portfolio, if I never deposited any more money and I never reinvested the dividends, I could expect to make around 1500 bucks from it the rest of my life, assuming that the companies don't pay any greater dividends, which they probably will. It'd be 1500 a year virtually for the rest of my life. And you can see this again, it's just a times 12. So if I went to like, you know, September 2020 again, $4,271 a year. What I'm doing is I'm constructing a passive stream of income that will grow month over month. And again, the idea is to grow this to the point where it's not giving me 4,000 a year, it's giving me like 4,000 a month. It's gonna take a long time to get there. That's not an easy thing to do is construct a portfolio that gives you a massive amount of passive income. But this should give you somewhat of an idea. Just know that when you're building this up, the more data points it has, the more accurate it will be. I'll talk about this more in another video, how to update it, some little tweaks on it and things that you can do. I wanna to jump to the mentality behind it and why I think this is all so important. I'll go ahead and play a clip from one of our favorite investors here. So there's two types of of assets to buy. One is where the asset itself delivers a return to you, such as you know rental property, stocks, uh, uh, a farm. And then there's assets that you buy where you hope somebody else pays you more later on, but the asset itself doesn't produce anything. And those are two different games. I regard the second game as speculation. Now, there's nothing immoral or illegal or... Did you hear what Warren Buffett, his main point was in that? I think that this is a pretty good category that gives my mindset on investing. He summarizes things into two basic types of assets. There's one type of asset where the asset itself, the thing that you purchased, it gives you returns in and of itself. It's not reliant on anything else. Then there's another type of asset where you buy it and the main thing you're hoping for is that people pay you more for it later than what you purchased it at. I'm not really doing that second type of investing. My portfolio is geared around the, the first type outlined where I'm buying assets 
that it doesn't matter what other people are willing to pay for them. They will continually give me residual returns month over month, quarter over quarter, without anybody else's involvement. For instance, I look at this right here. If I go to my gains, market gain is $3,565. Earned dividends is $1,119. So the market gains are typically more. Most of your returns in any stock portfolio, typically the majority of it comes from uh, capital gains. But the nice thing about a dividend growth portfolio is that you don't have to concern yourself with the capital gains because all this says is that people are willing to pay more for the stocks that I own than when I originally purchased them. Now, the earned dividends is different. Again, this is returns that I get whether people are willing to pay more or less. If this was negative $3,000 and I was negative on my portfolio, it wouldn't really matter all that much because the earned dividends would still come in steady. This part of the portfolio is the part where the asset itself is returning value month over month, quarter over quarter. It's giving me returns regardless of what other people are willing to pay for it. And that way I'm not held hostage to investor sentiment. If investors are spooked because of bad news or whatever, and my my value drops down because they're willing to pay less for it, it doesn't matter. I'm still earning dividends. It's still returning value to me. I have some kind of protection there. I'm not totally reliant on what other people are willing to do. I'm just more reliant on what the company's actual financial status is. And I'd rather be tied to the actual companies and their performance than the whims of the market. Now, diving into this deeper, I wanted to give an analogy and talk about real estate in particular. So if I go here, I think that this is a pretty good comparison. So let me go ahead and put together a quick table here. And go ahead and I'll put dividend stocks here on the left. On the right, we have real estate. Now, I'm sure you've heard this comparison before, and I know... We're all familiar with dividend stocks here. I'm pretty sure everybody's familiar with real estate rentals at one point. I think most people have rented from an apartment at one point in their life. But this is what I'm going to be comparing together. And the first thing that we do is we buy stock. And with real estate, the first thing you do is buy a rental property. Now, this is typically where there's a lot of research in this phase. So when you're buying stock, you know the research that I do. I have a lot of different episodes on how to evaluate different companies, how to look at their history, how to look at their future growth prospects and their competition and their economic mo, all that different type of stuff. With real estate, it's similar. You do a lot of research. I mean, it's a huge decision. It's a lot of money. You want to look at the competition, the price you can charge with rent, the upkeep involved, um, all that type of stuff. I actually have some photos because I've told you guys before that my, my dad bought real estate throughout his life. That's how he made most of his money. And here's a couple of pictures of it. So this is a picture of a fourplex that he bought. This is a really old picture. I believe it was in like 1991, maybe like two years after I was born, somewhere around then. This is a fourplex. There's two places upstairs and then two down in a in basement underneath. And four married couples live here. So you can see... This is pictures, I think, right as he was buying it or before he was buying it. And so, you know, things don't look all that great on it. There's lots of overkept shrubs on it and the concrete's kind of falling apart. The, the grass is all yellow. Uh, the roof has a lot of work to do. If I go to here, here's a picture of the side lot on it. we got cars parked right on just a kind of a dirt driveway on the side. I mean, I've done a ton of work on this place, painting it and doing all sorts of stuff with my brothers and sisters doing lots of work on this place over the years. So I'm more than familiar with it. But if I actually look at this, yeah, so check this out. We got broken up concrete. So we had to repave all these steps and do all this different work to it. Here's an insight just to give you an idea of how old these places are. And here's the interesting part. So when I was talking to my dad about this, he had copies of the original agreements he had. So if we look at this, 
The original purchase price was $83,000 for this fourplex. Now, the down payment was $9,275. The earnest money is $250 for earnest money. The total purchase price for this fourplex is $93,000. And check this out. The interest rate is 8.5%. And this is on a 15-year mortgage. So that is a crazy high interest rate. For a 30-year mortgage, it would be even higher. But... And I actually, he had another paper out, the original pros and cons list he did of buying the property. He wrote down all these things that were positive about it, all these things that were negative about it, and it gave kind of a full overview of his decision. So on this research phase, there's a lot of research that goes into each of these. If I go on to the next one, this is a pretty basic here. We'll go, for dividend stocks, we collect income through the dividends. For real estate, we collect income through the rent. Now, this might seem really simple and obvious on the surface, like you're saying, duh, but that really is not how people treat it most of the time. That is not how they treat it. For real estate, it's exactly how they treat it. Ask anybody that bought a rental property, right? They just went and they signed all the papers. They have the bank loan for it. They got the the mortgage for it and everything. Now they own the place. What do you think is their next objective? What are they immediately going to try to do after they just bought this property? Are they going to go and get appraised and just kind of see if it went up 5% in value or down 5% in value? Honestly, has anybody ever done that? They buy rental property and then they go out the next week to get it appraised every week just to see just to see how it's doing in the market. No, of course, their objective after buying real estate is to get the income, get it rented, get leases signed, get tenants in there, and to start getting that monthly income. That's what people do with it. Now, with dividend stocks, it's different. People say, well, I buy them, you know, I want to get the income from them, I want to get them. But then what they do is they buy the dividend stocks, they go with here, they check their portfolio, and then they're looking at this one day number and looking at it every single day if it went up a percent in value or down a percent in value. The mentality, for some reason, is totally different between the two when I don't think it should be. I think when you buy dividend stocks, you should treat it as if every single stock you own is a rental apartment. And if it's rented, if it's paying you that dividend income, it's as if you own a rental apartment that you're collecting income through rent. You're not going to get an appraisal on a rental apartment every single week or every single month. When I asked my dad how many times that he got his apartments appraised throughout the 30 plus years he's owned them, you know, he says that he's never really looked at the price. He's had some people offer him and then that gave him an idea because people would say, hey, I'll pay you this much for it. And he goes, oh, you know, that's a lot of money that they're willing to pay for it. But that was not his concern. He wouldn't go and, and try to get it appraised on a monthly basis or a daily basis. So the mentality differs here when it shouldn't. If you have a dividend stock portfolio, your focus should be on keeping those places rented, meaning you should focus on the dividend stream continually coming in. Now, this is part of the reason where if there's a company in my portfolio that decides that it no longer wants to pay a dividend, either it's trying to pay off debts or it wants to get its finances under control, it just can't pay a dividend to its shareholders anymore, I'm probably going to sell it. That's one of the rules that I set in my portfolio that if a company stops paying a dividend, it really doesn't belong in my portfolio. My portfolio is centered around collecting income through these dividends. If a company's not helping me accomplish that goal, it doesn't belong. I have a lot of different companies to choose from as well. My portfolio has like 55 different companies. So if a couple of them cannot pay their dividends, that's okay. 
I'm going to sell them probably at a little bit of loss for those companies. I'll roll that money over into ones that I think are better suited and that have better futures and will continue to pay dividends. That's not a big deal to me. Now, I mean, it's the same type of idea where in real estate, what happens if you have a tenant that's not willing to pay rent? You know, they've gone one or two months without paying rent. You have to evict them. You have to move on to somebody that's going to help you generate that income. So I view my dividend stocks, again, very similar to the way that I would view real estate. Everything needs to be returning capital back to me. If it doesn't, I'm going to swap it out for something that is. On that note, it brings me to the third thing on this that I think is similar between dividend stocks and real estate. Dividend income, it should increase every single year because the companies, they usually raise their dividend every single year. And most companies raise it far faster than the rate of inflation. Now, if I look at real estate here, if you own a lot of different rental properties, year over year, your rent income should be increasing because as time goes on, rent gets more expensive. I'm sure people that are renting right now are fully aware of that, that they pay more in rent now than they did five years ago. Now, I've showed you lots of graphs on this channel. If I look at one of the classic examples here, here's Realty Income Corporation. Here's their dividend history. You can see over the years, they increased their dividend income. Most of the companies don't have this solid of dividend growth, but they have different graphs resembling the same type of thing where they just pay you out more and more every single year. That's the type of company we're looking for. Now, if I compare that to real estate, here's the consumer price index for urban consumers, their primary residence. So this gives you a visualization of how rent increases year over year. You can see since 1986 that it's just increased every single year. It had a couple years that were flat during the recession, but overall rent has just gone up gradually as well. Another similarity between dividend stocks and real estate, I would say is reinvestment. With dividend stocks, you... You reinvest the dividends into buying more shares. And similarly, with real estate, you reinvest the rent into buying more properties. So it's the same type of thing. If you want to grow a portfolio of rentals, you need to have cash flow positive places that bring in excess cash. Not only are you paying down your mortgage and you're, you're getting rid of a lot of your debt to equity ratio, but you have cash flow positive. You can start building up money for another down payment and you can use the first property to help you gain steam in purchasing the second property. And then those two properties to help you gain steam in purchasing the third one and so on and so forth. That's exactly what my dad did. At one point, he owned seven different rental apartments and he did this by reinvesting to rent the income that he was getting back into other properties and back into themselves to do upgrades and different things so we could charge more rent. So reinvestment is the same with real estate. You're getting continual income. You're reinvesting it back into the properties and to buy more properties. Now with dividend stocks, the reinvestment part is a lot simpler than with real estate. With dividend stocks, you literally just hit a button and turn on auto invest. M1 Finance is pretty awesome with the way that it reinvests. So it has this feature auto invest and I have it set to on, which means that if I have more than $10 in cash right now, I have 51 cents. So this isn't going to be invested. Once I get to over $10, that $10 will be reinvested into this pie, whatever is the most underweight holding. It doesn't have to be what paid the dividends. So most like traditional brokers, if you got uh, paid a dividend from Amgen or Merck or something like that, the dividend would be dripped right back into that same holding. I don't really like that way because it doesn't keep a portfolio in balance. It's likely that the company that just paid you a dividend is one of the furthest away from going through the ex-dividend date again. So with this way, with what M1 Finance does is it just finds the most underweight sector 
And then within that sector, it finds the most underweight securities, the individual holdings, and it puts those dividends back into those holdings. So it tries to keep this pie in balance. So right now, real estate is not going to be getting any future dividends or cash flow. It's going to go into like tech or industrials or one of these ones that are more underweight. It won't go into real estate. It won't go into utilities um, because both of these ones are a little bit overweight right now. So M1 Finance has a very easy way to reinvest your dividends back in your portfolio. All the of the $1,100, all of this has been reinvested back in my portfolio. And now those additional shares I purchased with that $1,100, those are paying me dividends as well. That's reinvestment. That's a lot where the compounding gains comes in. Now, another similarity that I'd post out, this again is with mentality. With dividend stocks, when prices drop, you buy more. With rentals, when prices with real estate, when prices drop, if you're a real estate investor, that is a great time to pick up a property. Usually real estate investors do not like picking up properties when the price is really inflated and they know that the rent they're getting isn't going to be able to cover the, the mortgage that they get on the property. They have to look for good deals here. Now, unfortunately, what I see a lot with the, the this side of things, the dividend stock sides, is people do the exact opposite of what a real estate investor would do. Like I said, with a real estate investor, when the prices drop with the market, when real estate goes down, they have their properties rented, and what they would do is look to pick up better deals. That's exactly the actions they would take, a good real estate investor. They want to continually grow their portfolio, and to do that, they want to look for good deals. They need prices to come down. Now, with dividend investors, a lot of times I see, yeah, they want to do dividend investing, but they get really caught up in this, just the gain right here. The capital gains, if they see this race up, they're celebrating. And a lot of people, they haven't, I mean, they don't have a massive portfolio. They're still buying in. They're still trying to collect and accumulate shares. And what you're really celebrating when the market gains just race up is that you're having to pay more for the same amount of shares. That's what you're celebrating. So, I mean, I'm kind of guilty of that too. Sometimes it's just a good mental thing to see this number go up. But in reality, is it really helping us accomplish our goal? If you look at this, if the goal really is to grow a passive stream of income, if I'm averaging $130 a month, I want to grow this stream of income and have it compound as quick as possible. It's the way to do that by having the price of companies become so expensive that I'm buying less and less of them every time I make deposits. I don't think so. I think dividend investors would benefit from mimicking the same type of attitude that real estate investors have. When the prices drop, you look for better deals. That's when you do the majority of your buying is when things look cheaper. When they get really expensive, you're reluctantly reinvesting at that point. Now, the last thing, and this one is pretty obvious, the ultimate goal of any dividend portfolio with mixed fixed income is to live off the dividends. And likewise, if you own a lot of different rental properties, you want to live off the rent. So hopefully this gives you a little bit better of a look into the way that I view this portfolio, my goals behind it. This might align with the, the way that you invest it might not, but this is the type of strategy I'm pursuing. I really view my dividend stocks as like buying individual rental properties. I want to collect income through them like rent. I want that rent to increase year over year. I want to reinvest that rent into buying more properties. If the prices drop, I'll look for deals and I'll try to more aggressively pick them up. Um, and then eventually the goal is to have it be something that subsidizes my cost of living, that helps support my lifestyle later on. Now, I really do view my companies that way. I look at all my holdings. All of these pay me back capital residually. Most of them pay quarterly dividends. Some of these holdings like LQD, they pay monthly interest. Either way, every single one of these returns capital to me on a residual basis. And that's exactly what I'm looking for in this portfolio. 
Okay, so moving on from that, I haven't answered your guys' questions in a while, so I'm going to go through some of them. If you guys want to write in or get your question answered on the show, it's josephcarlsonshow at gmail.com. That's josephcarlsonshow at gmail.com. Okay, so this first comment was left to me on YouTube, and I wanted to highlight it because it underscored some of the blowback that I got from the previous video. The most recent video I did was the Dividend Haters one, and I assumed I'd get some kind of blowback with it. I usually do with every video. This one I was kind of giving my arguments of dividend investing, things that I like about it, and and things that I think are criticisms of it that aren't accurate. I didn't get a whole lot of blowback with that part of it, but I did get blowback with a, like one line I said throughout the video. And what that was, was I was talking about how I don't criticize other styles of investing. And I said that the only thing that I actively have discouraged people from doing is day trading. And that upset a few people. I got a, a couple comments. I want to read one of them. This is from JR. He says, I completely agree with you, except that you did the same thing that you condemned. You bashed day traders. Trading is not investing. You're right. But to say day trading is not profitable is just as ignorant as people saying dividends don't matter. Should most people day trade? No. Can very few people do it and be successful at it? Yes. So don't bash something you don't understand, can't do yourself, or don't know someone personally who can. Day traders are actually better risk managers than most retail investors because they have strategy and manage risk. It's far from gambling, so please learn more about it before you bash it again. Okay, so a couple things with this comment. The first part where he says, you did the same thing that you condemned. You bashed day traders. Uh, I did no such thing. I did not do the same thing that I condemned. The thing that I condemned, and that's that's a strong word for it. The thing that I said in my last video that I don't like that people do is when they go out of their way to uh, discourage and, and minimize and down talk other investment strategies. So whether people are investing in real estate or index funds or you know dividend growth investing, whatever it may be, I tell people to do it because I think overall they're going to have a much better outcome if they invest in general and they should figure out what they enjoy doing most, right? So what I quote unquote condemned was people just taking the steam out of people's sales. When they found something they like, uh, other people going and talking it down, I don't think is a helpful thing. Now, he even says trading is not investing. Uh, and a lot of this, a lot of this comment, I actually agree with. If I read on, he says, you're right. But to say day trading is not profitable is just as ignorant as people saying dividends don't matter. Should most people day trade? No. Can very few people do it and be successful at it? Yes. Why on earth would, I mean, we're nearing 20,000 subscribers here. Do you think there's a chance that I'm going to direct this many people into something that most people can't do and very few people are successful at? There's no way. Why on earth would I ever do that? With investing, most people are successful at it. You do not have to be smart to do it. Uh, that's the honest truth. A lot of people, I mean, it doesn't, there's no IQ test for investing. You go, you gather money, you put it into productive asset, you put it into something that will grow over time, and you make money doing that. You don't have to be intelligent to do it. You don't have to know any special formulas to do it. Dividend growth investing is very easy to follow. Anybody can figure it out. Uh, when he says, should most people day trade? No. Can very few people do it and be successful at it? Yes. To me, that sounds a lot like gambling. I mean, there's some people that are successful playing poker or blackjack or whatever the game is. There's some people that have figured out these specific uh, ways of playing the game that they get ahead when nobody else does. And I'm trying to do something where most people can make money. It's very few people that don't make money in it, right? That's what investing is to me. So 
I understand that people do make money day trading. There's people out there that make money day trading. I also understand that a lot of the attitude that attracts people to day trading is the attitude of quickly making money with very low effort. And that draws in a lot of vulnerable people into activities I think are financially destructive. You look at a lot of the YouTube thumbnails for day trading, and they have numbers like $500, $5,000 a day, how I turned $5,000 into $100,000 in a month. And to learn it, all you have to do is you have to sign up, you have to go through this 10-step course, and then that course will teach you all the secrets and all the patterns to make this type of wealth. In reality, all they're doing is leading you down a sales funnel that they're going to sell you on these products. And... And they're, I mean, they just set the hook and they're reeling you in on how to make money. That's not what this channel's about. I like dividend growth investing because it's something anybody can figure out. It's something anybody can make money with it over a long period of time. There's no special secret to it or anything like that. Most people that do investing make money. You don't even have to be good at it. So uh, completely different sides there. I do acknowledge that people can be profitable day traders. That's not the game I'm playing. I still hold the stance that most people should not even bother with it. I don't think it's a productive thing for the majority of people to even bother with it. And honestly, the people that are going to do it, I really doubt that they're going to be my type of viewers, the people that are attracted to a portfolio based around consistent growth over long periods of time. So that's my thoughts on that one. I'm sure I'll get more feedback on that. So we'll see. Okay, so the next question is from Brian Meyer. He says, hey, Joseph, did you hear the news about the U.S. debt deficit growing to where they might default in the near future? With these new tariffs the president has in place, if the U.S. defaults, are you going to sell your treasury bonds or hold them? Chairs, have a blessed day. All right, Brian, let me give you a secret. Uh, I actually know firsthand that the U.S. is not going to default on those debts. Uh, the channel's grown pretty big, and I've kind of had the ends with Trump, so I've been able to text him, and he's told me they plan on raising the debt ceiling. Okay, so in reality, I know this without having to go any further, because if Congress or if the president allowed the U.S. to default on its debts and not play, pay its bondholders, it would be probably one of the biggest catastrophes economically that has ever happened in the history of our country. Jerome Powell, the Fed chair, he pretty much said as much in a little bit more tempered of a way. I could tell he was holding back a lot of his real thoughts on this, but I'll go ahead and play a little clip of this. Uh, could you walk us through quickly, if you could, the economic of impacts of failing to increase that debt ceiling? Well, um, the failure to increase the debt ceiling um, creates a lot of uncertainty in the first instance. And then, and then when you actually get up to the point where the, where the government runs out of cash and, and doesn't pay the bill, we've never, we've never passed that point yet. That's kind of a bright line. And I hope we never do pass it. But there's a lot of uncertainty that's generated and a lot of distraction from what is otherwise a pretty good economy. What would happen to our interest rates on $22 trillion worth of debt if we were not to do what we needed to do with the debt ceiling? It's, it's beyond even considering that the, the idea that the United States would not honor all of its obligations and pay them when due is, is just something that can't even be would it double? considered. It would go up. I mean, I, but I, I think we... It would go up. Okay. Understatement of the century. So th this actually brings up, I think, a pretty good economic lesson here. So uh, you might have heard the term like money is cheap for these people or money's expensive. Sounds kind of weird, but really money comes at different prices. For instance, if you're going to buy a home and you need to get a loan from a bank and you have great credit, 
the bank is going to give you a very low interest rate on it, meaning that you have access to that money for uh, a very cheap cost. Now, if you have terrible credit, the bank doesn't really want to loan to you because they consider you higher risk. That means that they're going to charge you a higher interest rate. And now that money is expensive. If the U.S. defaulted, on its obligations. It would go from the most creditable, most trustworthy source of, of debt to be able to purchase to one that's not anywhere close to that. And the U.S. has been enjoying very low interest rates on its debt. Uh, we have an enormous amount of debt, but the fact that we're paying such low interest rates makes it manageable. If the U.S. was to default on that, the rates that we would have to pay would go up dramatically to the point where we could not even be able to fund them without dramatically cutting down on other costs. It would be an uh, economic nightmare. It would permanently damage the entire reputation of the U.S. Uh, it would never be able to get credit at the same price as before. It'd be the single dumbest economic things that could possibly be done. So uh, Jerome Powell in that, I mean, he, he pretty much says the same thing, but no, that's not going to happen. I don't think there's any conceivable chance that that would happen. Okay, so the next question is from Ken. He emailed in, and I actually got a handful of uh, people asking questions about the same topic. So this is the one I'm just choosing to respond to. He says, hey there, Joseph, really been enjoying your dividend investing videos on YouTube. I'm an older investor, but really take away something positive from each video you put out. So keep up the great content. I'm interested in your thoughts on Iron Mountain. Today, the stock was downgraded by Bank of America analysts to sell with a target price of $25. It's down 8% as I write. I've been in a position for a few years, but shared your concerns of their future. I'll wait to see how the earnings report fares coming out next month and decide what I'll do then. I'm interested in your thoughts on this, and maybe you can make a more broadly based video on what dividend investors should do if one of their holdings gets downgraded. Thanks, Ken. But really, I my sentiment towards that company has not changed much, and I did exactly what I said. So in that video, I said, what I'm going to do is hold on to it, but I'm not going to continue to expose myself to it with future cash flow. So I've continually reduced the percentage so that no future cash flow goes into it. I still have the shares that I originally purchased. They're still paying out dividends right now. Uh, I think what you can do is look at the reasons that I sell. So I sell if they, they cut their dividend. That puts them on the chopping block where I will strongly review them and decide whether to sell right then. And they better have a really good case of why I shouldn't sell. So that's one reason. The next one is if the fundamentals of the company, the thing that the main things that are making them money are eroding so tremendously that they can't transition over to something else. And I gave GameStop as an example for that. Their most profitable part of their company, GameStop, eroded. That was uh, buying games and reselling them. And their efforts to transition over to other things that didn't have nearly the profit margins. So you have to look at Iron Mountain and see what they're transitioning over to if you believe that that's a viable option to replace their previous, their previous way of operating. And some companies are doing a good job of that. Like Coca-Cola, for instance, they know that soft drink sales are, have been flat and sometimes even going down a little bit. But they know that all these like in-between drinks of these different waters and juices and, and sport drinks and stuff are on the rise. And they've been transitioning over to that really well to continue growing. So you have to look at if the company is able to adapt to a business plan that you think is good enough. And I haven't spent the time with Iron Mountain specifically to look at that, so I don't have really enlightening input on this one specifically. Um, I may look at it as it gets closer to this earning reports and see if I really want to keep this company. Uh, but that's where I stand. My sentiment towards it hasn't changed that much. I still think that they're going to struggle in the future. It's just, do you think they're going to be able to make it and transition to a more profitable, future-proof business plan? Uh, that's where I am with it right now anyway.
Okay, so I'm going to end it there. Uh, keep in mind the next video I'm doing, I'm going to be going over a full tutorial on how I use that uh, income tracking graph to show your income that your portfolio is generating month over month. I'll be showing how to use that and update it and how to copy, you know, make a copy into your own Google Sheets so you have your own and all of that good stuff. So I'll have that out in a few days and I'll talk to you guys then. See ya.